Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I'm very grateful to have a distinguished psychiatrist, a scientist, entrepreneur, and author of a book that I love, Dr. Carl DeMarcy, uh, called Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. And Dr. Marcy, I first read about you in the Boston Globe, and I said, how come I don't know this man? Oh, he's at Harvard. And I reached out to you and you kindly consented to this this interview. I just want to say you're currently the Chief Psychiatrist Managing Director of Mental Health and Neuroscience at OM1, a health technology and data company based in Boston. You're a board-certified psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, part-time assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, where you also did your um, MD uh, with honors. Uh, you're a Rhodes Scholar. I could go on and on with your credentials, but wow. Um, you are a psychiatrist and a social neuroscientist. And I must say, I first read, listened to your book on Audible and I said, I need to get a copy because I really want to read this over and over again because it's so central to what I think is a critical issue uh, around the world today. So what I'd like to do, if, if I may, Dr. Marcy, is just ask you a question and just start this way. Um, your book is filled with, with science. It's peer-reviewed by Harvard Press. You emphasize the importance of social bonding for all of our well-being. You rightly point out that our social connections are undergoing a ma massive metamorphosis thanks to burgeoning social media. And indeed, we live in an age of large, superficial online social networks that drain our time and attention. So you talk about the importance of social bonding. You talk about you know, how we need to be wired for maximum health and then how we're getting rewired by the digital circumstances. And I love your chapter nine where you give practical advice on what we can do yeah. to protect ourselves and go forward. So um, with that introduction, please uh, share with our listeners some of the more important points you'd like to make. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for your interest in the book and, and for inviting me on, on your uh, podcast. Um, you know, there, it's, it's hard to know where to begin, but um, what I do in the book uh, is begin where we all began at birth. Uh, and it's important for your audience to know that uh, the human brain uh, at birth uh, is very unique in that it's only 10% developed. That means 90% of brain development occurs outside of the womb. And if you also think about it from a social uh, community perspective, uh, we don't let our offspring typically go off on their own until they're about 17, 18, 19 years old. That's a really long time. Uh, and so we shouldn't be surprised that our brains have these network of neurons that uh, allow us to make very deep and profound and ultimately important uh, bonds and connections, one brain to another. Uh, so you made a reference to uh, social neuroscience. So I was the, the first director of social neuroscience at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, and I remember when I uh, was talking about that title, uh, the, the head of the department at the time, Jerry Rosenbaum, said, well, I'll give you the title if you tell me what it is. Um, because it was, a, That's it, was great. A, it was a very new, new field. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the first textbook had been written. So I bought a copy of the textbook and I said, look, it's a textbook. It's got to be real. 
Um, but but the evolution is is uh, I think if you're uh, interested in the history of science, you know, you start with neural science, which is the study of neurons, individual neurons, mm-hmm. and how they connect with one another. Um, you then graduate to neuroscience, which is networks of neurons, uh, and and then you're studying the the individual brain, and then the cognitive psychologists, the people who think about thinking. Uh, said, wait a second, maybe we could, uh, you know, combine our thinking about thinking and cognitive psychology with neuroscience. And that became cognitive neuroscience. And then uh, no one should be surprised that the emotion researchers, uh, the affective uh, psychologists got in the game. So we have affective neuroscience, emotion uh, studies of the brain. Uh, And then, you know, finally, the social psychologists and anyone thinking about how we actually live said, you know, time out. Everyone is focused on individuals. Uh, we don't live like that. We need to really think about how we how we work as a community. So social neuroscience is really the study of how our brains uh, are, are in commune uh, with each other. And, and like I said, a lot of that evolved uh, because uh, the, the you know babies and infants at birth are are so incredibly vulnerable uh, that there's yes. a whole field uh, of social attachment uh, and and the brain science associated with that. And the core premise of the book is that um, this, this very precious. Uh, ability for us to connect uh, is being disrupted by technology. Exactly. And for my for my listeners know that I'm interested in brainwashing and mind control. And so a lot of my research as a mental health professional is social psychology uh, applied. But I'm fascinated by neuroscience. And I just, your book is chock full of the science that I feel everyone needs to understand because the implications uh, are are world changing, really. Yes. Uh, human species have never been in digital environments, <laughs> except in the last couple of decades, right? Well, yeah. Let, well, let's just talk about the technology for a second, right? So, if if you look at uh, the history of technology adoption, uh, historians use the uh, rate of adoption from about forty five percent penetration to a population to about seventy five percent. Right. And it, it, it took uh, electricity and the light bulb about 15 years to do that. Uh, it took the Internet and computers about 10 years to achieve that milestone. Television was the reigning champion at five years. Uh, and then along comes the smartphone, uh, you know, in that atom splitting moment in 2007 uh, when Steve Jobs gets up on a stage. And a mere three years later, we have 75 uh, percent. Uh, uh, penetration. So it's really an extraordinary acceleration of technology in, in what you know I and others have called an uncontrolled global ex- global experiment uh, with people walking around with supercomputers in their pockets connected to you know the the, the internet and everything that brings. Hard enough for adults, even harder uh, for children. And that's that's why the book takes a developmental perspective. You know, again from birth through developmental stages, and says look. Yeah. We, we have developmental neuroscience, and we actually know a lot about the brain at different life stages. Why don't we take, uh, my big idea was uh, to take the lens of neuroscience from a developmental perspective and then say, what is appropriate at that age? Great. Right? right? We, we don't let uh, children drive a car uh, until they're at least 16-year-olds. They've passed a test, an eye test, a cognitive test, and then typically they have to have a chaperone for a few years. And even then, yep. their insurance rates are really high. Um, right. You know, why, why, <laughs> yeah. would, why would we give an 11 year old, again, a, a, a computer in their pocket that has the computational power of uh, 10 times what it took to put a man on the moon yeah. connected to the entire library of what's in the world and all the entertainment and risk that goes with? It's just it's just a bad idea. Right. So so we need to we need to move past that. 
and not having data privacy protections because companies are gathering all of our preferences, developing marketing profiles, plus uh, unregulated social media that says, oh, free speech, we should let everybody say whatever they want and look at the mess that has caused. Well, and, and to that point, you know, I think uh, there's always a healthy tension between you know, the government regulation and, and free markets. And, and we could debate that all day. Uh, but I, I do think in this case, um, things have gotten a little out of balance. Um, and when, again, from a child development perspective, when we're exposing children to, um, you know, user generated content uh, that has one purpose, which is to hook people uh, on that video and get them to watch more um, and ignores a the, the need to educate kids, B, the fact that you're actually distracting kids from the thing they need most, which is, you know, human face-to-face -face interaction, play, um, you know, exploring the world um, and, 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 and reciprocal feedback, which is what, you, you know, even you and I, we're both nodding, right? Yeah. Our, our brains are, are kind of resonating with each other in a way that you can't do that with a static video. You, you, you just Correct. can't do it. And that, that's, um, you know, that's something we learned uh, actually a, a few years ago. And I tell the story in the book um, about the Baby Einstein series. Do you want to hear that? Yes. Yeah. But let me just first say sure. that I watched the Social Dilemma documentary that oh. Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin and the Center for Humane Technology did. And they interviewed former executives of these social media platforms and they say, we won't let our kids be on screens until uh, at least four years of age, which, which jives with, I think, your recommendations. Well, the, please. The, yeah, sure. The, well, let, let's start with the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, which actually has right. very good recommendations that I, I suggest, I quote in the book, and I recommend all parents should review. Um, yep. The American Academy of Pediatrics says zero, zero screen time uh, until age two, with one exception. Uh, and that's uh, telephony, FaceTime, you know, Zoom with like typically grandparents uh, and parents. Now, and if you think about it, that exception, it makes sense because it's just like what you and I are doing right here. It's not exactly right. face to face, but it's pretty darn, darn close. Um, I say three in the book because I think two is still too young. And part mm -hmm. of the reason I say that is, is uh, you know, because the, of the, the vulnerability of the human brain at that age um, and other studies that show for every hour a child from one to three uh, uh, consumes media per day, their risk of ADHD at age seven goes up 10%. Really? Yeah. That's a big, big number. Um, the other thing I, I like to talk about and, and wrote extensively in the book um, is what's called the video transfer deficit. Now that sounds technical, um, but let's start with something that's not technical. Uh, baby oh, yes. Einstein, baby Einstein. So was it around 1996, uh, this mom uh, in the basement of, of her home uh, borrows a, a video camera uh, and, and has, has a newborn. And, and she's got the right sort of uh, instinct, which is how do I uh, educate my, my newborn? Uh, and is there something out there that I can you know, uh, give her, I think it was a girl to do, uh, that would be enriching. So she created a series of videos uh, that were essentially hand puppets with uh, you know, some, some classical music in the background. Right. And they were wildly successful. And parents were bragging Commercially about wildly successful. Commercially, thank you for that clarification. <laughs> yes. we'll, we'll get to that in a second. So yep. commercially very successful. At one point, uh, there uh, two-thirds of American households with children under the age of three had at least one of these uh, DVDs or VHSs mm. in their home. 
uh, and, uh, and and there were you know people bragging about how their their child could sit for hours and, and stare at these videos. They must be learning, um, and uh, and and the, they won awards. Uh, and uh, Disney ultimately bought Baby Einstein. And, and there's a quote from uh, the, the CEO of Disney saying, you know, yet another uh, wonderful uh, contribution to the Disney family uh, learning and educating young minds, right? Okay. Right. Now, what happened? Well, uh, in, in, in 2006, 2007, uh, research started to come out and show that not only were children under three exposed to Baby Einstein videos not learning at an accelerated rate compared to their peers, they were falling behind, mm. you know, and, and this is uh, where researchers started to really hone in and say, what's going on. And the video mm -hmm. transfer deficit that I referred to earlier is the fact that a brain under the age of three is just does not have the neural scaffolding to take information from a two dimensional world and apply it to a three dimensional world. Full stop. They just can't yep. do it. So all you're doing is distracting that 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 baby, that young child, from the things they should be doing, right? Mm -hmm. So now consider the fact that uh, you know when 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 I was young, uh, the the average age of you know media consumption back then television uh, was four years old. Now it's four months, right? The earliest age of exposure, and around nine months, kids are you know exposed to it on a daily basis, you know, and and. Something like ninety percent of of kids under the age of two have access to a mobile phone. I mean, this is I mean, this is just we're still we haven't even got into you know age three to five, right? So, yeah. so the big concern in that early stage is uh, that that really we should be protecting these children from from any exposure to any media, um, full, you know, full stop. Uh, three to five, we get into another uh, uh, lane. Do you want to do you want to talk about that? Please, I, I, I think that everyone needs to read this book. And please invite Dr. Marcy to come speak because seriously, we're in a, in a crisis mode in the world. And I think that there are bad actors using social media to radicalize people and put all kinds of crazy, insane beliefs that are making people delusional. So we need to think the healthy track what's been done to us, but then how to protect ourselves. So the platform is yours. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll get to social media as, as the child gets a little older. Uh, Great. Typ typically at the three to five age range, um, the issue that, that I highlight is, is the need to learn to read, right? Mm. You know, so if you think about reading as a, as a human skill, uh, is, is really only the order of about uh, three to 5,000 years old. Um, and we've been on the planet. <laughs> well, we've been on the planet as, as Homo sapiens for about sixty thousand years. So this is late right. stage stuff. And so yeah. we don't have a, a neural structure for reading. We have to borrow from our visual cortex, from our language cortex, our prefrontal cortex, uh, and we need to synchronize that. And that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics again uh, suggests exposing children to reading from day one out of the womb, because it takes a long time to to build that that neural scaffolding to to do reading. Okay, some interesting research came out uh, a few years ago looking at uh, the network of neurons that are critical to early reading and uh, did something very simple, which is took kids who were, uh, were not exposed to much media in the home and compared them to kids in an fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging device that takes pictures of a healthy brain, and compared mm -hmm. them to kids who were exposed to a lot of uh, media in the home. 
And sadly, what they found is the kids exposed to a lot of media, that, that network that's so critical for reading uh, did not light up as extensively as, as, as it should. And we know that the ability to read uh, is so critical to, to future academic success um, that, you know, that, that's just something that I really focus on in, in that age group to start there. When my wife and I adopted a little boy from Ukraine when he was two years old, I was advised to read to him picture books, but reading. And, and so my child could hear words and get used to uh, sit, sitting with a book and looking at the pictures and using my finger. And it was really important. And we managed to keep him off a smartphone till middle school. We, we were told, give him a flip phone so he can call if he needs you to be picked up or something. Well, I, I love that story. Um, I, I would add, in addition to, you know, reading to him and giving him feedback uh, that he was taking in with his visual system and his auditory system, I'm, I'm guessing you were also lap sitting or, or sitting next to each other. So you've got the oh, physical touch. Mostly, mostly actually bedtime reading right. so story. You've, so you've got physical touch. Uh, yep. You're also in a reciprocal way looking at him. He can ask you questions. He's interacting with the book. You're pausing to explain things. Uh, exactly. I mean, if you, if you break down what you were doing uh, beautifully to that, that two-year-old, um, it's really what every parent should do. And the richness of that interaction, right, if we were to pause and think about it, relative to a child sitting and watching a video on a smartphone, uh, to yep. me, is, is night and day. Night and day. Yeah. So you, you, you shouldn't be surprised that these kids are growing up uh, and having trouble. Yes, exactly. So please proceed along the developmental track and let's get to adults and what's happening now with our, okay. our brains. Well, let, let, let's not yeah, skip ahead please. too quickly. So now we've got okay. the, the, the sort of five to, to nine, right. 10 years old, right? Latency, which in, in many ways is a, is a lovely age because the kids uh, still idealize their parents and caregivers. Um, they're, they're old enough to, uh, to take right. direction pretty well. And their, their brain, particularly their prefrontal cortex, uh, is matured enough where they have some impulse control. And I, and I want to pause uh, and talk about the prefrontal cortex, if I may. Sure. So, so, you know, the brain is very complex, right? Uh, 80 to 100 billion neurons, each one making between 10 and 20,000 connections. You know, it's thought to be one of the most complex entities in the known universe. And what's really cool is we all have one. Uh, yeah. and, and I make uh, very few uh, predictions or guarantees in life, but I, I guarantee that the brain that, that you had and I had and your listeners had at the beginning of this conversation to the end is not the same. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because as we're talking and as your listeners hopefully are listening and paying attention, uh, their, their emotion centers are directing that attention to certain bits of information and they're firing. And if that emotion center fires at a particular level, you're going to lay down a memory trace. And if we're really good here, uh, Dr. Hassan, we might even inspire some of your listeners to change their behavior, you know, whether it's with their children, maybe to go out and buy my book, uh, or any number of, of things that they might consider doing. That series of events I just described. Attention to something that emotionally moves you, lays down a memory trace, and ultimately changes your behavior is a definition of engagement uh, that I created uh, a number of years ago when I was doing consumer neuroscience. Um, okay. And what's interesting is it applies very well to how we engage with the world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what, what's critically important is it starts with attention, right? right. And, and, and then it goes to emotion. And part of emotion is reward. 
Um, and what the uh, social media companies and big technology companies and all of, of the uh, many things on the internet are designed to do is grab your attention first and then fire your emotion and reward centers. And yeah, that's the key that's is the understanding key. emotional activation is the key to cognitive growth and learning, right? Exactly. So, you know, people uh, make the mistake of thinking of humans as uh, rational creatures who are occasionally emotional. You know, as you know, we're emotional creatures who are occasionally rational. Um, or and, rationalizing. Or, right, or rationalizing. <laughs> um, and and, and what I, there's a nice corollary list that a friend of mine gave me, uh, which is that we're most rational when we feel safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I imagine resonates with you and some of your work. Right. Because a lot of, you know, hijacking people is to make them feel uncomfortable. It takes the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex offline to be rageful, fearful, etc. Exactly. So think of the prefrontal cortex uh, as the arbiter of our executive function, uh, the conductor in our own personal symphonies, uh, the difference between impulsivity and impulse control the difference between recklessness and self-control, and the difference between habit and addiction, right? This part of the brain, which sits right here behind our forehead and our orbits, uh, is by far the most highly evolved part of the brain. It's the most interconnected part of the brain. And think of it as having sort of a, a, a kind of a reciprocal relationship with our emotion and, and our rewards centers, right? So the prefrontal cortex, you know, should be in charge, should be able to tamp down. Now it needs information from the reward centers and, and, and the emotion centers. Yep. Um, but when these things, the emotion centers become too hot and this too cold, things get out of balance, right? And that, right. that's essentially uh, addiction, right? So people who are uh, addicted to opiates or cocaine or any number of substances, their prefrontal cortex is shut down to the point where the reward centers are driving the bus. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what they're doing is they're just guiding you to the next high and the next yep. reward because Dope, of dope, because dopamine. The, that's right. The dopamine high, right? So. Now, if I were to tell you that, well, there's studies that show you could take uh, adolescents, teenagers, and put them in an fMRI machine and study their reward centers, and you give kids uh, photographs, random photographs, uh, and, and you alter one thing, which is a number on those photographs, and you tell them that those, photo- those numbers represent the number of likes, um, guess what happens? The higher the number, Lights the more up. the reward centers light up, right? So we know that... Two things. One, we know that sharing information lights up the reward centers and then getting information back at at, at what we've now all been conditioned to thumbs up and likes stimulates the reward centers in very powerful ways. Um, So, but back to our uh, five and 10 year olds, right? So the prefrontal cortex now is at a stage where uh, there's a little bit more balance, right? Because if you watch, you know, young kids, they're, they're, phenomenally impulsive, right? You have to watch them constantly. They'll, they'll walk into the street and get hit by a car, right? You, you cannot let these kids uh, out of your sight for a second. Now you get to about five, six, seven, eight, you get in that latency period and, you know, kids have a little bit more control, right? Yeah. They, can, they can read, they can begin to do math. You know, school, their, their brains are exploding, but, they're, they're, but uh, internally, but the size of the brain has actually started to level off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what gets introduced and what I talk about in that age uh, in the book, Developmentally, um, our computers at school, computers yeah. for learning, uh, and more screens for entertainment. And what, what gets introduced is uh, what I think is one of the most insidious things and something I spent a lot of time uh, talking about you know, uh, in the book is this idea of media multitasking, right? And so media multitasking uh, is very simply the idea is you're, you're consuming one channel of media 
uh, and simultaneously doing something else. Now, that something else might be a task or it might be another channel of media. So you're at home watching TV and you got your phone out. That's guilty. That's yeah, look, we all do it. Uh, guilty. Or, or you're Twitter, at, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, podcasts, whatever. But the brain can't multitask, right? E yeah, that's you're emailing you and you're checking your social media feed or talking to a friend. You know, I mean, I can't tell you now at work because we're all Zooming. Uh, you could just tell when someone's like staring at the screen. It's like, you're not paying attention, right? You're, you're obviously doing something else. And I'll say, hey, Joe, do you mind stopping for a second? I have a question for you. Um, yeah, put the phone down, out of sight, turn it off when you're engaged socially is another big message you you're, right. But anyway, keep going. No, you're please. you're right on. So uh, so what so what I talk about is this age is where you begin to introduce media multitasking, right? Kid, because kids are starting. You know, they're gone from you know one to three hours a day uh, of media consumption now to sort of three to five hours per day, right? In the sort of five to to ten age, um, and and you start to do things uh, multi and video games and 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 uh, you know uh, all kinds of. Uh, screen content that you can imagine. Um, and uh, the risk is the earlier you introduce any kind of media multitasking, uh, the more hooked people get to, to it. Because if we go back to the reward centers for a second, uh, Steve, that what, what, what you need to keep in mind is that um, study after study after study after study has shown that multitasking of any kind results in two things, slower processing speed and increased error rate. So let me do that again. Study after study after study after study showed that the more you multitask, right, the, the slower you actually process information and the more errors you make. So why do we all do it? Why do we all do it? Well, the reason is it's a, it's a brain trick, right? If you're doing two things at once, you have to work harder, right? And your brain yeah. has to work harder. Well, what have we learned growing up? The harder you work, the more productive we are, Right. So we think we're more productive because we're working right. hard, even though when you actually measure the productivity, uh, it's actually quite bad. So it's this insidious uh, brain trick that's very unfortunate um, and is leading you know, a whole generation to do a whole lot of It's an erroneous belief, and it's one of those things that it makes us feel smarter that we're doing multiple things. But in terms of actual productivity and quality of work, the studies show... It goes down, hundred percent, and 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 now we can segue to, to social media because we as we enter uh, the the sort of teen years, um, that becomes a really critical uh, channel uh, for all kinds of reasons. But when you look at the multitasking data, um, particularly in uh, adolescence, um, the the number one offender uh, while doing homework that interrupts the brain circuitry is social media. And I, I believe that part of the reason is because it's so compelling, right? You're, you're, it's your friends, and they're reaching out, and you want to react, and you want to get those likes. I mean, how can uh, algebra compete with that, right? How can uh, American history com compete with that, right? And so, so this is where we have to begin to have a conversation about digital literacy um, and, and really protecting our, our kids, or they're going to get in trouble. And I have to jump ahead, and then we'll come back, please, sure. to... Uh, 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 FOMA, fear of missing out. FOMO, to yes, what, yes. What FOMO to what you recommend? The joy of missing out. Sure. Right? Uh, um, 
as we as we get through uh, you know to adulthood and adults suffer the same problems all the other ones do, uh, we we begin to have a conversation uh, about you know is there hope? Um, because you know I, I, even myself, like first of all, when I went into this research seven years ago, um, you know I, I was actually you know curious of what I would find because um, I was doing research in consumer neuroscience and seeing behaviors that to me as a psychiatrist began to look like addiction. Um, and, and I was just like, wait a second, I've treated patients who have opiate addiction. I've treated patients with cocaine addiction. I've treated patients with alcohol addiction. I've treated patients with gambling addiction. You know, I've never treated anyone with a smartphone addiction. Like, is that even a thing? So as I began, well, now it is seven years, <laughs> seven years ago, people yeah. weren't sure. Um, Got it. Right. And Got as it. I started to look into this and, and the more I read, the more I did research, um, the more I realized, wow, this is a bit more of a thing than I thought. I wasn't alone in, in my concerns and that there was a ton of brilliant academic work happening uh, in traditional media as well as new media that could inform uh, a thesis. Uh, and the thesis I had, again, was that we, we are putting our prefrontal cortex at risk um, by doing the three Ds, right? We are distracting ourselves, we are dividing ourselves, uh, and we're making ourselves depressed. Um, mm. and, and so I think that... Uh, you know, that's really uh, where, where all this goes. But to JOMO, uh, which is the corollary and the antidote to FOMO. Uh, so uh, as I was writing the book, the third section, uh, I wanted to dedicate a significant part to uh, hope and things we could do. Yes. Right. right. So I, I came up with 10. Practical advice. And uh, all of them were like, yes, 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 please yeah, share well, with our well. listeners. And we want you to go out and buy this book. At the very least, buy the Audible version, listen to it. But if you are like me, you're going to want to read it because that's a different part of your brain, reading than listening yes. in terms of learning. And, and, and I, I will say uh, another recommendation, if you recall, is uh, a paper over pixels. Um, yes. So, so you are going to retain more of the book if you buy the, the, the hardcover or the paperback and you read it on, on paper. So a plug a plug for good old-fashioned books. Um, yep. we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but yes. I, I want to say before we talk about these recommendations um, that I, I wanted not only to have uh, enough of them to be meaningful and not sort of trite surface recommendations, um, I wanted them grounded in the same science that I used to, to come to the conclusions I've come to in the book. Mm -hmm. So each one of the recommendations, uh, as I put it forth, I also talk about the science behind how this is likely to make your prefrontal cortex healthier and more resilient, right? Yep. So that, that's really the, the goal of these recommendations. So, so uh, choose JOMO over FOMO uh, is, is number two. Number one, by the way, is stop media multitasking and stop multitasking, right? That that's, should be an and easy turn one. turn off notifications and schedule time to when you check email or whatever, but get your work done. Yes, embrace Focus. monotasking. Uh, yes, you monotasking. Know, and, and yeah, serial monotasking is fine. And I, you know, I, I have to block out time on my calendar to, to not email and, and do deep thinking. Um, I need to literally put my phone away. I, I love this study. I, I have to share with you and your audience, right? Um, Please. And that, that I think summarizes a lot of this, right? Um, so they took, uh, in this case, it was college kids doing a math test. Um, and they had three conditions, right? So condition one, leave the phone outside the room where the math test was happening. Condition two put it under your chair. Condition three, put it on the desktop upside down. Okay. Now in all three yep. conditions, the phone's off. 
right? And you have to turn it yeah. off because they're taking a math test. The results were a step function, right? So the further away the phone was, the better their scores were, and the closer it was, the worse they were. So the mere presence of the device actually interrupted their ability to do math. Other studies have shown the mere presence of the device interrupts social relationships. So people with a phone in, yeah. in, in between them actually have a different conversation than if that phone is not there. Now, why is that? Well, part of the reason that, that, that I hypothesize um, is this notion of divided attention, right? Mm -hmm. So just knowing it's there and all the things it can do. And by the way, I'm not against technology. I've got smartphones and tablets and computers. I, I mean, they're amazing devices that are you know, transforming the world. No question. Yep. Um, but um, just like when the automobile was introduced in 1907 and it took 10 years before there was a stop sign, uh, you know, there, a lot mm. of people died and there were a lot of accidents, right? So it's time we need a, a, a few stop signs on the, the information superhighway. Um, so, but, but, uh, but back to the, the, the point here, um, as, as we think about JOMO uh, and, and FOMO, the idea is to step back uh, and realize that there are other rewards in the world um, besides social media, uh, that social media, uh, although can uh, bring joy in terms of connecting people at a distance, um, sharing uh, information with uh, loved ones who maybe you don't talk to that much, um, mm -hmm. connecting with friends, uh, preferably to meet up and have face-to-face -face interactions. Um, you know, if used properly, uh, and can be a source of information too. Uh, if used properly, it, it, you know, it, it can serve a perfectly reasonable function. Um, what happens is if, if it becomes a means to an end, uh, you get in trouble. And what also happens is if it, if it becomes uh, a place where uh, we get identity confusion. So another recommendation is be careful with your online identity. Uh, and if you think about social identity theory, uh, and I quote Eric Erickson in the book, The Great Developmental Psychologist, who said, as a teenager and adolescent, there are really only two questions. Who am I and how do I fit in? Yeah, he and, wrote and, the critical book on identity. Eric right. Erickson. And so, and if you think about it, uh, how, how do you do that if you've got a different identity in one social media platform and a different one in another social media platform and a different one when you're at home with your parents or with your friends? Right. It's very confusing. Uh, because, you know, as Shakespeare said, all the world's a, a stage and, and we are merely actors in it. Well, uh, he only anticipated one stage, not five. Right. right. And, and we have the opportunity, uh, as, and, and you've done well uh, managing lots of different platforms for, for your own work. Um, that, that I hire to... people. Yeah, that's one way to do it. <laughs> that's how I manage it because I can't, yeah. it's too much. Yeah, it's well, healthy. And, but if you're 15, you can't hire people. Right. right. And, and you're trying to manage yourself and, and you get into some identity confusion. I think that's been uh, you right. know, another source of issue. And I think it was Goffman who came up with presentation of self. That's um, right. That's right. And, and, uh, and social identity theory. Of, He's the father. Of yeah. And, and those of us who've studied radicalization, radicalization, radicalization online, talk about social learning theory and contagion effects. If somebody goes out and does a mass shooting and they're on social media, it affects us. And people, people learn bad things and do bad things. Well, you know, you've inspired me to think a little bit about this. Um, you know, as, as you and I were talking, you know, preparing for this conversation, you know, I said, I've always been intrigued by how, you know, otherwise healthy seeming people 
uh, can become radicalized, uh, you know, relatively quickly uh, to do horrible things. Um, and, and the more I thought about that, the more I realized, well, maybe this isn't so surprising in the modern world where you've already got a, a distracted and, you know, dare I say, partially damaged prefrontal cortex, right? People are not at their best. And then you've got maybe young people uh, who are experimenting with different identities online, not really right. clear who they are, uh, who maybe, um, you know, get have a bad day or a bad week or bad month because, you know, bad things happen, life happens. Um, and their brains become very vulnerable to, uh, you know, any kind of outside influence that might be promising things that they can't deliver. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. And, and uh, sleep deprivation and going online while they're super stoned. I, I can't tell you how many people have gotten recruited into destructive cults because they were just curious and algorithms were suggesting videos to them or while suggesting <laughs> friends while they're high, while they're sleep deprived. And one thing about cult recruiters, they're taught to love bomb, to flatter, oh, you're so special, you're so smart, tell me more about yourself. And what was what's different now than it was when I was recruited into a cult in the mid-70s is when cult members had to recruit, they had to ask questions in person to find out the person's background and where their vulnerabilities were yes. parents divorced. And now they can do it online, right? Now you can yeah, you can buy stuff on people if you want to do a targeted attack on a specific, you know, affluent person or or a high profile person. So it's just getting exponentially disturbing. I just interviewed Rand Waltzman, who's who's an Information Professionals uh, Association co-founder, who's been doing uh, computer and AI stuff for 50 years. And he said, beware the metaverse. He said, as bad as things are now, think about how much data can be gathered on you in real time and how authoritarian political leaders or whatever can control on scale and customize messaging um, well, and unconsciously. Not, not, not to mention, um, and years ago I had an early experience on the Facebook campus with the Next Generation Oculus, um, just how rewarding it is to be in an environment you can control every aspect of it. Mm. Right. I mean, it, it's 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 going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be something we're going to have to reconcile with as, as a society. There's no question about it. Um, but, to, to you know, you mentioned sleep. So one of the, another recommendation of the book uh, is to protect your sleep. Um, and when you look at, uh, you know, the data on sleep in the brain, it's very clear um, that we spend a third of our lives in the semi-conscious state. Children need more of it than adults do, and they need plenty of it. Uh, because their brains are growing so quickly. But even adults uh, need, a, you know, between seven and nine hours uh, a night of sleep. Um, and, and all this technology makes it very hard to, to get that, that rest. And, and what does sleep do? Well, besides, you know, restoring our, our bodies, what it does for our brains is allow us to consolidate memories. And there's a big mm -hmm. debate in the literature about whether we sleep to remember, meaning we sleep to, to sort of form memories and consolidate the important ones, mm -hmm. or sleep to forget. Let's wash away the things that aren't necessary or some combination of the two. Uh, mm -hmm. But regardless, you know, we know for a fact uh, that without sleep, learning can't uh, uh, occur. And then to your point, the other thing that happens when we're sleep deprived is our prefrontal cortex doesn't work as well. Uh, so we become vulnerable 
to our emotional states and, and rewards. So I'm glad you brought that up. So a recommendation there is, you know, for parents, I say, look, you just, you just, if you're going to let them have smartphones, you got to collect them before bedtime, you know, and lock them up at least an hour before, <laughs> you know, and get all the screens out of the room. You know, on average, the American adolescent has five screens in their bedroom on average, right? Wow. They've got a computer, a television, some kind of game console, a, a, a tablet, and a smartphone. Five. Five. And, and am I remembering correctly your statistic about 11 hours that they're online versus five or six that old fogies like me are online? Uh, not not, not quite. So, so it turns oh. out adults uh, do trump teenagers. <laughs> um, adolescents oh. on the order of nine hours a day. Um, but, but again, that's half of our that's waking hours. Uh, yeah. Adults are pushing are pushing eleven in the in this country. Um, oh, the adults are so that's right. more adult, than uh, yeah. So if you look at media consumption from birth to adulthood, it really does go up pretty steadily. Now, what's driving that is uh, you know the, the ability to use this on the go in a way that we couldn't uh, consume media on the go previously, and importantly, media multitasking, uh, in, including in places where we we couldn't even conceive of it uh in the past yeah it's it's so i i i'm so grateful for your research and there's so much more we need to understand about things i did have a question to ask you so the law because i did my doctoral dissertation on wanting to create models that the legal system can use to evaluate undue influence mm -hmm. and the law says if you're 18 then you're an adult and you should be tried as an adult. And my understanding is it takes you to 25 or 26 years of age before you're more fully formed in terms of controlling impulsivity and executive control. What, what sayeth thou, please? Yes, I, I think it's a great question and it's an area of some controversies you can imagine in terms of uh, the, the, the disconnect between the law uh, and, and legal scholars and neuroscientists, right? And exactly as you said, from a neuroscience perspective, uh, we now know that the, uh, the brain doesn't fully mature, meaning uh, finish uh, you know, consolidating. We could talk about what that means uh, un until the mid-20s, right? And of course, mm -hmm. everyone, uh, like everything in humans, uh, there's some range around that. Some people mature a right. little early, some mature a little later. Um, but what's interesting to me um, is that the uh, car insurance actuarials actually were ahead of the neuroscientists. Well, right? money always, they're always smarter. That's seems. right. Well, and if you look at insurance rates for cars and age, it's around the mid-20s that they start to come down. Because yep. magically, kids in their mid-20s all of a sudden are better drivers. No, they're not all of a sudden better drivers. They have a better brain that has better executive function and better impulse control and makes better decisions, which make them better drivers, right? Yeah, and now so, you're prodding my memory to another one of your recommendations. Don't text and drive or don't be on your phone and drive. Yeah, let, let's, uh, let's talk about that um, because I, I think um, of the um, awful consequences that uh, I talk about in the book, uh, many of which are around mental health, also physical health, right? Obesity, myopia, um, you know, poor sleep, and all the consequences that have. Um, there, you know, uh, outside of uh, increased rates of suicide, which is tragic, uh, but still only affects a relatively small number of people, um, there's only one other deadly outcome 
to 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 this device and and it's and it's the automobile uh and if you look at uh, uh the the history of uh deaths per mile which is a nice mm. metric because it controls for how many cars are on the road and economic influences and other things in uh-huh. this country death per mile in this country has been going down steadily for decades until after we got seatbelt laws, seatbelt laws, airbags, <laughs> no, sensors of all right. types, better road right. signs, better lighting on roads. I mean, you know, innovation after innovation after innovation yeah. around driver safety was actually having a positive impact on the death per mile until until 2016. And the first time now that we've got penetration of smartphones right well above 75 percent, death per mile ticks up and it does yeah. it again in 2017. And again in 2018, and again in 2019, we are reversing a 40-year trend in deaths per mile because of a particular habit and another insidious brain trick. So let me let me walk you and your audience through this because I think this is, this is important, right? So it let's save about, lives. Listen, people. Well, let's talk about habits, right? So what is a habit, right? Is a habit is 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 a way in which your brain, and particularly an area of the brain called the the striatum takes multiple steps, right? And I like to use the example of learning to ride a bike, right? You gotta, uh, actually, let's talk about a car, right? It's better talking about cars, yeah. right? You okay. get in the car the first time, you know, you gotta figure out where to put the keys, you know, where the drive is, adjust the mirrors, all kinds of steps that you have to do. And you have to think about each one, which gas and brake and all this stuff. Um, and, and the first time you do that, you literally have to think about each one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Over time, the striatum begins to pull a series of those actions together uh, into a single action unit. It's almost like a computer code that can sort of roll the tape and you don't have to think about it. So habits uh, are ways in which the brain has evolved to make uh, complex tasks more efficient. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another habit we were talking about earlier, right? It was media multitask. So yeah. imagine I'm uh, in my living room and I'm uh, you know, watching TV and I'm on my phone um, and I occasionally get, a, a, you know, I talk about the text ping and, and uh, app ring, the, the siren song of the, of the smartphone. Yeah, notifications. And I, I, right, right, and I pick it up. That's right. It vibrates. It does all kinds of things to call for our attention. And I pick it up because I'm just sitting there watching TV. Now, what's the consequence of that action? Well, I might miss something on the TV uh, and I might miss a little bit of the plot or God forbid I miss a commercial trying to sell me something I don't need. You know, the, the consequence is actually pretty small. Right. Right. Um, what is the consequence when I now I'm in my car and I am going 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, you know, with, a, uh, with, with the equivalent of uh, what a, a friend of mine called, you know, uh, a guided missile. Um, and I'm one sort of distracted moment away uh, from killing someone or myself or a loved one. Um, yep. And the same thing happens. Uh, and what do we do? We pick it up. Now, here's the insidious part. Um, two things. One. Unfortunately, modern cars are so sophisticated and we've gotten so good at driving um, that at 50, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour on a highway going straight, um, we actually get bored, Mm. right? You know, it can be boring. And uh, going back to the beginning part of the book, I talk about how we use media as a mood regulator. And one of the things we learned- this is an important mood regulator. Please continue. One of the things that I learned, and, and kids are very vulnerable to this, but we all are, uh, is that when we were doing consumer neuroscience and we're watching when do people pick up their phone while they're watching TV, it was usually during the commercials, right? Because mm. commercials aren't why you're there. And then we saw in other studies that people, they, they pick up their phone when they're bored, right? We're in an elevator, pick up the phone, right? You know, you're sitting uh, alone in the doctor's office waiting, pick up the phone. Like, everybody does it, right? right? 
so so unfortunately we can get bored while we're driving and the temptation right to, to grab that phone is very high so you have to be really 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 careful um and then the other uh brain trick is that um that we are used to multitasking and learn to multitasking often in a safe environment, right? Again, at home, what's the worst thing that can happen? You miss a little bit of the show. At work, what's the worst thing that can happen? Uh, you miss what Joe said, or uh, you, know, you miss a notification, or you're a little slower on your thing. Not the end of the world, although over time that will add up. You know, in the car, it can be deadly. Um, yeah. And so I, I really uh, want uh, people, and I think, I think automobile manufacturers need to, to really step up their game a little bit and make it harder, not easier uh, to, uh, to use these devices while we're driving. Yeah, that's a really, really wonderful point. Oh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but not enough time in this particular interview. So maybe we can do a part two at some point in the future. So I'd like, we've been talking a lot to parents and you've been talking a lot to educators, I think as well, as well as to adults. If someone from the White House or people who have the means uh, to really make uh, policy changes, you know, use this opportunity to opine about what your recommendations are. Please. Sure. Uh, I'm not a policy wonk, so I won't be able to tell you what chapter and verse what I would recommend. But I, I think what I would recommend is, uh, first of all, you know, we're, we're going to need, you know, uh, health and human services uh, and, and the CDC and the NIH to, to really increase their budget so we can do more research, um, because that's really at the, at the core of all this. There's a lot of great research happening, um, but, but I, think, I think given given the risk, right, of a, of yeah. a generation of humans uh, being rewired to the extent that they can't make good judgments at a time when we need good judgment more than ever, I would say this is a high priority. Um, and so I, I think first we need to do uh, and fund better research. Second, I think um, there, there needs to be a very serious conversation about how we begin to put some, some rules and regulations in place, right? You know, uh, when I talk to, to parents about what kind of content I recommend for kids, for that one hour a day, because, you know, kids should have some entertainment. Yeah. I say long form professionally produced content that has a clear beginning, middle and end, and hopefully has some educational goals. Why? Storytelling. Well, storytelling, but also the FCC, right? And, and there's rules about what yeah. you can produce. And I would be much more comfortable having my kid and your kid exposed to things that have you know, aren't going to have foul language, aren't going to have all kinds of references and, and violence and, and everything that, that happens. And, and the key part of the, you know, some of the rules around social media is not being a media channel, even though it's in the name, right? right? You know, got them off the hook, right? And I think we need to revisit that. I think number three, um, we need to figure out a way to make it a common expectation for everyone to start to have some kind of digital literacy in their lives, whether it's uh, avoiding being recruited and radicalized uh, online or avoiding the trap of misinformation or avoiding the, the, all the divisiveness and, and how, look, the reality is I'm involved in a nonprofit that did this amazing study. When you look at Democrats and Republicans' um, views of each other, they're just as divided as you think. Um, but they're mostly divided around the way I think the other side thinks of me. When you ask them how they actually think about the other side, about particular issues, they're actually closer uh, than we think. So, so some of this divisiveness is actually artificial, you know, because of the yeah. echo chambers and, and stuff we live in. 
So, uh, so I think we, we need to um, begin to think about and talk about what does digital literacy mean? That means we need the education schools, we need all schools to think about, you know, sex ed, digital ed, every ed. Uh, and, and so that kids uh, at the early age are begin, given the tools so that they can succeed in a world where these devices are ascendant. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so um, can I ask you about folks on the spectrum? Because I have noticed a trend that some of the people who are most prone to being radicalized online uh, are, are high-functioning folks on the spectrum, and they meet uh, their recruiter uh, on doing video gaming. And my understanding is that the part of the brain lights up that they think they believe they're, it's a friend, even though they have no idea who's on the other side of the screen playing the game with them. Can you, any comments or thoughts on that? Sure. And, and, and this might be a nice place to wrap up, which is, uh, you know, one of the, uh, I think, takeaways from the book for, for the academy, right? For the, you know, for the psychology and psychiatry uh, and, and brain and mental health researchers and clinicians uh, to take yeah. away from this book is that uh, we need to uh, be much smarter and more nuanced about thinking about the risk factors, right, for people who could get pulled into radicalization, uh, pulled into misinformation, pulled into uh, video game addiction, pulled yeah. into media multitasking. Um, and, and, and what I've learned, uh, shouldn't be surprising, is that people who are more risk are those who have had some kind of adverse life event uh, or pre-existing mental health condition, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, every mental health disorder, whether it's spectrum uh, autism or uh, depression, anxiety, uh, schizophrenia, is, is a deficit of the prefrontal cortex, right, mm. at some level. So, so anything we could do to, to stimulate brain health and realize that there are certain populations uh, that are going to be at more risk than others. Look, everyone's at risk because we're all changing our habits and we're all fundamentally rewiring our brains uh, around those habits. Full stop. That's just a fact. But there are going to yep. be some people who are at more risk than others. And I think uh, clinicians uh, across the board have to recognize that and begin to screen and, and think about how to help people. Yeah, and to understand that neurogenesis, neuroplasticity is something we can use as clinicians to help people overcome past trauma or deficits and such. Uh, there, there's just a lot of positive things that could be gained uh, as well as understanding that we really, you know, we should be in control of our own minds and not let somebody else control or not let the, 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 the smartphone control us, et cetera. Well, can, um, can I just comment on that as a, as a nice way to end, which is, yes. um, you know, one of the core premises of this book is to date, because we're in the early stage of the smartphone revolution, is we have been uh, far too reactive than proactive to this technology, right? And so part of what digital literacy does is says, it's time to be proactive, right? We, we need to be in control of the conversation for ourselves, for our children, for society, not just constantly reacting to what's given to us. Proactive, please, rewired. Dr. Carl D. Marcy, protecting your brain in the digital age. Thank you, Dr. Marcy, for your good work. And I hope we can talk again. I have a million other questions to ask you. It was my pleasure. And you're, 
And you're at, uh, are you still affiliated with Harvard? You're yes, a, a yes. I'm, assistant I'm on, professor. I'm on, I'm on faculty there of psychiatry. Yep. So I'm going to invite you to to speak at our forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School because I think this is groundbreaking material. Thank you again. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.